Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. So much has happened during the past few months that the Senate's acquittal of President Trump of all impeachment charges in February of this year feels like it happened in the distant past. Jeffrey Tubin, the chief legal analyst at CNN and a staff writer at The New Yorker, lays out what happened during the years-long inquiry led by Special Counsel Robert Mueller and the third impeachment of a president in American history in his latest book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. In it, he takes readers behind the scenes of the epic legal and political struggle to uncover the truth about Donald Trump's alleged complicity in several crimes and explains how prosecutors and congressional investigators allowed him to avoid all accountability. It's published by Doubleday, and I'm very pleased to welcome Jeffrey Tubin to our show now. Hi. Hi, Leonard. Uh, Good to Jeffrey, talk to you again. Yeah, well, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Jeffrey, is this book an attempt to explain why that, despite the fact that so many Trump associates have been sent to prison or face criminal charges, Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, Roger Stone, Michael Cohn, that the president remains untouched despite the, the, the misconduct of all those people close to him? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose you could say that's that's part of the story I, I'm seeking to tell. You know, I'm, I am um, a little bit wary of saying that the president escaped entirely unscathed. I mean, I, I think it is a big deal to be impeached, uh, to be the third president to be impeached. Uh, you know, the president is heading into his reelection campaign historically unpopular. And I think um, the, the, the Mueller investigation and later the impeachment investigation, you know, took a political toll on him. You know, it is true that um, he, he was not convicted in the Senate, and it's true that he was not uh, criminally prosecuted. But um, this was a major stain on the the president himself and his presidency. So I think to treat um, the, the, the series of investigations as complete failures and complete triumphs for Trump is um, is, is not really fair to, to the investigators. But now it looks like he may even uh, work out a way to be reelected because of what he's doing with the U.S. Postal Service which is not part of our conversation here, but still, <laughs> yeah. uh, it goes on. You interviewed over 100 people, members of Mueller's staff, subjects, and, mm -hmm. and witnesses in the probe, Trump's legal team, members of the administration. Um, I guess most of that was done because you were at CNN and also writing for The New Yorker. Were there people you wanted to interview but couldn't? Yeah, Mueller and Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I tried very hard to to interview uh, to to interview Mueller. Um, I I I think it's safe to say he authorized his staffers to speak to me after their investigation was over, and I and I, I'm very pleased that I got that access. They hadn't spoken to anyone. I don't believe they've spoken to anyone before or since. But um, I would have, of course, liked to speak to Mueller himself. It's funny. I saw, I think I was sort of on the verge of getting an interview with the president when the when the pandemic hit and things things sort of shut down. But other than that, I had um, really uh, I, I thought enormous access and got to you know get inside the heads of the principal figures on all sides of the story. 
Well, it was my sense as I read your book that many of the major players involved had flaws and Mueller uh, <laughs> very much so. What would you have asked him if you'd had the opportunity? I, I'm sorry, Leonard, if you broke up there for a second. What, what was the question? Well, I, I guess uh, he, like Mueller comes across as a rather complicated and not always likable person in your portrayal of him. What would you have asked him? If you could have. Well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, the, the, my book begins with uh, w- with a, a scene uh, uh, between uh, tr- the, the one and only meeting between Trump and Mueller, the, the only time they ever met, which was May 16th, 2017, mm-hmm. the day before Mueller was appointed. Um, and it, it was at that point that Rod Rosenstein arranged for Mueller to come to the Oval Office to um, offer advice on who should be the new FBI director because the president had just fired James Comey. Um, you know, they, they, they are, um, on, on, in certain surface ways, very similar. They're, they're almost exactly the same age. Uh, Trump was born in 1944, Mueller in 42. Uh, both come from wealth. Both went to Ivy League schools. But they were so incredibly different in how they have lived their lives. And, you know, Mueller um, is, is someone who devoted his virtually his entire life to public service, um, who is who is someone who's not just a public servant, but someone who believes in American institutions, whether it's the Marine Corps or the Justice Department or the FBI. And and I think, you know, he is a deeply honorable man and conducted an honorable investigation. Um and, and they and as as I say, I think they uncovered a lot, and I think they they had some major successes. Like a lot of uh, human beings, I think Mueller uh, his his flaws are similar to his virtues. Uh, his dedication to institutions, I think, led him to shy away from um, doing two things that I think were 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 real failures in his investigation. Um, his failure to seek a grand jury subpoena for Trump's testimony. And his failure to state in his report that uh, Trump committed the crime of obstruction of justice. So, so I think you know th- those were those were mistakes. But uh, by and large, I, I think Mueller is an honorable, if not exactly warm and likable person. So, what was the the purpose of that meeting between them in May 2017? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it's that that meeting is is a wonderful way to set up the book because it, it, it encapsulates so much about both men. You know, Mueller was doing his duty. He was asked to give advice and he came to give advice. Trump, you know, was, was floundering around, um, didn't really, you know, never really seeks advice from anyone. All he does in meetings, you know, you hear this over and over again from people who have meetings with Donald Trump. All he does is talk. He talks the whole time. So he doesn't really seek any information or wisdom from anywhere else. The other reason the, um, the meeting is so, is so revealing is that for years, Trump has lied about what went on at that meeting because Trump has tweeted and said, Mueller came to that meeting to beg for his old job back, that he wanted to be the FBI director again. And he had been the sixth director. He, he had been the director for 12 years. Um, and um, the, after J. Edgar Hoover, Congress 
set a law, established a law that said FBI directors had fixed terms. And 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 Mueller had served his first 10 year term and he got a two year extension from Congress. But. So there was no way he could have been FBI director, but Trump, because he wanted to invent a phony conflict of interest for uh, Mueller, uh, given that he was shortly thereafter appointed as, as the special counsel, invented that. Mueller wanted his old job back, but Mueller didn't want his old job back, and he couldn't have had his own job back. So I just think that's that's characteristic of of the lying that that Trump engages in on such a regular basis, and is one of the bases for this investigation. Did Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, ever consider appointing anyone except Mueller to the for the post of special counsel? You know, he he actually didn't. There was one other name that came up, but um, uh, Rosenstein really fixated on Mueller from the beginning, and understandably so. When you think about the qualities that were necessary uh, in this politically fraught environment, someone respected by Democrats and Republicans alike, someone who had experience both in law enforcement and sort of the international aspects of law enforcement, because um, this investigation obviously involved uh, Russia and other countries as well. And, and Mueller, as FBI director, you know, had jurisdiction for counterintelligence. So he was someone, you know, well steeped in these sorts of issues. Um, so he really never thought about anyone else uh, seriously for the job, never offered it to anywhere else, anyone else, and really put a hard sell on Mueller to take the job. Was it important that Mueller was a registered Republican? You know, I, I think what was important was that he had bipartisan appeal, um, that, you know, he had been confirmed as FBI director twice uh, with overwhelming bipartisan majorities. Um, he was appointed once FBI director by George W. Bush and then reappointed by uh, Barack Obama. Uh, the, the fact that Mueller was a Republican, I suppose, was was a side benefit. But I don't think Rosenstein cared about his particular politics as much as how he was perceived by partisans on both sides. Getting back to James Comey, who was the FBI director at the time, what did he write in his memos about his dealings with the president? Uh, had he been concerned about the president's conduct? Yes. I mean, you know, uh, James Comey is, is uh, I, I think, a deeply fascinating figure in, in all of in this story because, you know, he, he plays so many different roles and uh, is a good guy or a bad guy, uh, depending on uh, on on your perspective about uh, a lot of what went on. You know, I, I'm sure everyone listening remembers how uh, Comey injected himself into the 2016 campaign uh, in the final weeks by writing that letter about the Hillary Clinton investigation, which I think uh, was a disastrous miscalculation and may well have cost Hillary the presidency. But um, moving into uh, the period right after that, when 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 Trump won the election, even before he was inaugurated, Mueller, uh, Comey started meeting with him and he saw that Mueller, he saw that, uh, that Trump was trying to treat Comey like 
a organized crime boss treats treats a subordinate, basically trying to establish a personal loyalty, not a loyalty to the mission or the constitution or the laws, but loyalty to Trump personally. And then even worse, um, starting to lean on him to do his personal political and legal uh, uh, do, you know, um, agenda. Most notably when he, when he tried to get um, Flynn uh, Comey to drop the FBI investigation of Michael Flynn, who had been the first national security advisor. Comey understood how inappropriate all of these exchanges were. And he started uh, making detailed notes, detailed uh, summaries of these conversations because he thought correctly um, that they might be part of some investigation down the line. So these um, memoranda, which which Comey typed up almost as soon as he left um, his meetings with Trump, are extraordinarily useful and, I think, accurate summaries of the deeply unethical way that Trump operates as president. But didn't the FBI officials hide those memos? Were, were they afraid they might vanish or be destroyed by Trump? Right. This is this is something I learned in, in reporting the book, which I thought was pretty extraordinary. You know, after Comey was fired, the new FBI director, uh, the acting director, who was Andy McCabe, a, a, a career law enforcement official who who, who was uh, Comey's deputy, McCabe um, had seen the memo that Comey had shared him with him. But he said, look, this is uh um, th- this is a uh, a totally um, in- inappropriate behavior by the president. So we're opening a criminal investigation of him. And he put those memos in what it's what's known as Sentinel, which was the which is the FBI's um, evidence collection software. But even more dramatically, FBI officials took copies of those memos physically and hid them around the FBI so that if the investigation was shut down, including Sentinel, which they were worried about since they were shocked and horrified that he'd already, that the president had already fired Comey, that the memos could not be, could not disappear, that they, that they, that there would be copies of them um, that someone could get um, and, and, and continue the investigation. Is this part of what uh, President Trump is now calling Obamagate? I, I don't think so. Because I, I he's never really answered what he 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 uh, he never really has gotten specific about Obamagate. But I gather it's about the fact that he felt that he was being investigated while Obama was still president. His, right. I mean, his, you know, like a lot of things Trump says, it's not entirely clear. Yeah. Uh, what what he means, and uh, I think what what he means by Obamagate is um, what he regards as the inappropriate uh, opening of the investigation uh, of. Uh, are, are, are we getting a lot of static all of a sudden? I'm not hearing any, hearing but uh, I, I'm I'm hearing I, you in my I, headphones. Okay, if 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 it's if it's a, my engineer says there's no static. So okay, fine. It's your phone. Um, the the the, uh, 
the the um, what, what I think um, the president means by Obamagate is what he regards as the um, unethical, possibly illegal origin of the Russia investigation that uh, he needs that that, um, you know, he, he thinks that they never should have investigated his campaign's ties to Russia in the first place. And he thinks somehow Obama was complicit in that. But, Leonard, um, that that's so crazy that I I don't think I can even explain what the nominal justification for it is. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. My guest is Jeffrey Tubin, whose latest book is True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump published by Doubleday. What's the difference between a special counsel and an independent counsel? Was Kenneth Starr, when he was an independent counsel, able to do things that Mueller couldn't do? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really important question, Leonard. And, and um, I don't think a lot of people are aware, uh, aware of the distinction. You know, after water... The white water investigation passed, went on forever, for example. Well, well that, that's right. Well, after... after uh, uh, the, the Watergate, Congress passed a law called the Ethics and Government Act, which set up a structure for something called the an, an independent counsel. And an independent counsel uh, was appointed not by the Justice Department, but by by a, a, a three judge panel. And the judges set set um, the independent counsel's jurisdiction. Um, Lawrence Walsh was a, uh, who worked in Iran Contra, and I worked for him. Um, as you mentioned, Kenneth Starr um, in the Whitewater and Lewinsky matter were, were was an independent counsel. They had basically nothing to do with the Department of Justice. They were genuinely independent and had no accountability to the Justice Department. The Independent Counsel Act was allowed to uh, lapse because neither Democrats nor Republicans liked it. So there's no such thing as an an independent counsel anymore. And Mueller was appointed as what's called a special counsel. And what that means is that he was part of the Justice Department. He was a subordinate of uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. He He was the subordinate of the deputy because... Um, the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, had recused himself because he had been involved in the campaign. Sure. So um, but but what that meant practically is that Mueller uh, had to answer to Rosenstein. Now, Rosenstein never interfered with his investigation, but Mueller was always concerned that he that, that he might at some point limit his jurisdiction. So I think that led him to be very cautious and limited in what he actually investigated. And did that, he ever ask um, Rosenstein I, I, for did he ever ask Rosenstein for permission to extend his mandate? Uh, yeah, he did in, in certain areas. Uh, like, you know, the, he allowed him to investigate Paul Manafort's uh, financial dealings, for example. And Rosenstein never told Mueller no. But um, one very critical area where the 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 president, the, 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 the Mueller was worried that Rosenstein would say no, was on the issue of issuing a grand jury subpoena for Mueller for, for Trump's testimony, which at the end of the day, Mueller never did. And, and I think he did that in part 
out of worry that Rosenstein wouldn't let him do it. And I think that um, that was a real failure on Mueller's part. He also didn't ask to see Trump's taxes or other financial records. That's true. That's another area that he would have had to get Rosenstein's permission for. I'm a little more sympathetic to Mueller's Mueller's uh, um, caution in that in that area. You know, he he uh, th- those subjects uh, were not within um, Trump's original uh, Mueller's original jurisdiction. Um, so he would have had to ask for an expanded mandate. And much as that there has been a lot of conjecture about what's in Trump's tax returns and what dealings he might have had with Russia, which led to his you know, enormous um, subservience to and, and deference towards Vladimir Putin, there was no direct evidence of any sort of criminal behavior that, that Mueller had. Um, you know, a lot, I think other prosecutors might have made a different judgment, but um, there was I, I, I can see why why Mueller didn't didn't go that route, although it, it's, of course, frustrating to many people who were, um, uh, you know, who wanted who wanted to see an even more extensive investigation of, of Trump. Did the Supreme Court direct President Nixon to turn over White House tapes related to the Watergate uh, business? And, and didn't the, the court require Bill Clinton to give a deposition in a sexual harassment civil case against him? Given those precedents, couldn't Mueller have issued a grand jury subpoena for Trump's testimony? Well, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult legal question. And, and, and the answer is maybe. Um, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, you know, the, 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 there was a lot of sparring between Trump's lawyers and Mueller's lawyers on, on this issue. And, you know, as you point out, Mueller's prosecutor said, look, the president uh, was ordered to turn over the White House tapes. Um, in, in Watergate, Bill Clinton was ordered to give a deposition in a civil case in the Paula Jones decision. Thus, the Supreme Court would have um, ordered Trump to testify. Trump's lawyers responded that um, the the White House tapes um, involved no testimony from from the president. And and he didn't have to take time away from his duties. The tapes existed and they just could be turned over. There was no uh, invasion of the president's time period. And and regarding the... um, the the the, the the Clinton precedent, they said, you know, the only thing he was asked about in the Clinton, um, in the Clinton, you know, in his grant, in, in his civil deposition was about events that took place before he was president. So there were no issues of executive privilege raised. I, I mean, I have to say it, it would have been a close question. It would have been a, uh, a, 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 you know, major Supreme Court decision, but, um, I think Mueller engaged in a preemptive surrender on the issue, and that was too bad. Now we come to the whole matter of the legal meaning of intent. Isn't it relatively easy to prove intent, to show that a, deten- a defendant knew what he was doing was wrong? Are, are um, lies think, or even secrecy sufficient to prove intent? I, you know, I, I think so, but... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very, you know, the, 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 there, there isn't a lot of law 
on on these questions because you know it's so rare that presidents uh, get investigated this way. Uh, but yes, I mean, it, it, and and one reason why, it, and, and you know, th- these questions fold in on each other. Um, it is pretty easy to argue to to prove intent. The um, but um, the that's one reason he didn't need the the financial records because you know the the desire to win the election was all the intent he needed so um that you know that 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 kind of cuts both ways you you pointed out that there was no personal interview with trump in his written answers the president indicated that he didn't recall many important details Would, would things have turned out differently if he had been questioned in purpose in person because oh, you know he's huge there. and and, he and since he's yeah exactly I mean, what would the consequences he, have been if he had lied during that interview um well i mean that 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 i think it's very likely that the impeachment proceedings in the house would have started sooner and ended sooner but you know one of the one of the stories of the entire trump presidency is the incredible subservience of the congressional Republicans to Trump. I don't think there was any scenario where uh, 67 votes in the Senate were, were going to be there to remove Trump from office. Uh, I think that was uh, out of the, you know, that, that was never going to happen regardless of the evidence. So it's not like if Mueller had um, gotten Trump on the record uh, he would have been forced out of office. I think, you know, that, that that political judgment never would have been made by the you know sufficient number of senators. But I just think if you were doing a thorough investigation of the area Mueller was supposed to be investigating, you should have tried to get Trump's testimony, period. I just think that was that was the right thing to do. And uh, it didn't. Uh, and he didn't do it. Would you say that Trump's legal team outmaneuvered Mueller and his team, uh, especially after Rudy Giuliani was brought onto the, the legal team? Does Giuliani um, deserve credit you know, or blame for ensuring that his client was able to avoid an interview? You know, one of, one of the joys of working on this book was, you know, writing about characters like Rudy Giuliani. Um, yes. You know, who BAI listeners are all too familiar with, um, you know, going back to his mayoralty and his um, tenure as U.S. attorney in, in Manhattan. Um, and he used to be my boss when I was at WNYC. And when certain people came on the show, he would actually send over questions for me to ask. Did he really? Yes. Unbelievable. Oh, that's the who. Alphonse um, D'Amato. He really hated D'Amato at that point. And he sent over these absolutely ridiculous questions that I didn't ask. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, fortunately, uh, WNYC got its, got its uh, independence from Rudy. But, um, you know, Rudy was, in many respects, kind of a ridiculous figure. But there was, in the Mueller investigation, a kind of method to his madness. He did succeed in stretching out the, the, the negotiations over the subpoena to such a point that Mueller 
felt like he had to settle for those written questions were, as you suggest, which were, as you suggest, largely useless. I mean, it was just not um, a uh, not not a productive investigative tool um, because the lawyers wrote the answers to the questions, and as you say, they he, he said he didn't recall, and they. I mean, it was just, it, it was practically useless. Um, the other thing he did was by attacking Mueller so extensively, you know, on cable news and elsewhere, he politicized the investigation mm-hmm. and, he, and he turned Mueller, who was a largely apolitical figure if, and a nominal Republican, into someone who was perceived as just another Democrat enemy of, of the president. And that was effective. That, that you know, that tarnished Mueller and limited his 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 uh, support and range of motion. Um, and, and, you know, I think in a cynical way, you have to give Giuliani credit for that. You know, jumping ahead, um, I thought his his duties in the Ukraine investigations were catastrophic for his client and, and disastrous. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's a. Uh, it's um, it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, he was in, Giuliani was successful in the uh, Russia investigation, but a total failure when it came to Ukraine. We'll address the Russian and Ukrainian situations after we take a little break. This is Leonard Lopate at large on. WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. They want you to believe the unbelievable. Say we should accept the unacceptable. Forget your common sense. It is insensible. Good times for fools and dreamers. Watch them all deny the undeniable. See how they refute the irrefutable. Ready to defend the indefensible. Take just a couple of minutes to ask you. I'll say that again. Before we get back to my conversation with Jeffrey Tubin, I need to take just a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back on our feet after this pandemic has had such a negative impact on our financial situation. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopit at large and is financially able to step up right now by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the, our website, give to WBAI to help keep this show and this station on the air. That's 516-620-3602 or give to WBAI, give and then the number two, WBAI. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a special offer for anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be here. Uh, Loving today's show. What a fascinating conversation. If you are loving today's show as well uh, and would like 
to become a BAI buddy. Step up like your fellow listeners before you and support Leonard Lopate at large and WBAI. Excuse me. During this pandemic, during this unprecedented time, one great way to do it uh, is to become a BAI buddy and a sustaining member of the station for $10 or more a month. If you do that today, if you sign up today in the name of Leonard Lopate at large to become a BAI buddy, again, a sustaining member for $10 a month, $20 a month, uh, really anything above $10 a month that you're comfortable with, taken out of your credit card automatically, your debit card, whatever's easiest for you, you can stop at any time. If you sign up to do that today in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we will send you True Crimes and Misdemeanors, the investigation of Donald Trump by Leonard's guest, CNN chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. And you don't need to do anything other than that. You just need to become a BAI buddy today. You don't need to tell anyone at the other end of the phone line if you call 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two again five one six six two zero three six zero two to reach that call center, or you can also go uh, sign up to become a BAI buddy on the web at give to wbai dot org. That's give then the number two wbai dot org. So there's no other steps. You don't even need to tell the person on the other end of the phone. Just sign up today to become a BAI buddy, and we will send you Jeffrey Tubin's fascinating book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. And Leonard, as I'm sure you are finding in this hour and we're discovering as you were reading the book, you know, this is an issue that there's probably a lot of people out there who, when they first heard, you know, okay, a show about the Mueller report, oh, God, didn't, didn't we hear enough about that while that was going on? I think anyone listening would realize there's a lot that wasn't being talked about publicly in the sort of blizzard of news that was coming out of the Mueller investigation. Absolutely. And or we were getting it piecemeal and you either had to take notes <laughs> or wait for Jeffrey to write this book. Uh, and uh, I am so grateful to WBAI for giving me the privilege doing these long form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to our listeners. But uh, that's only possible uh, because we are totally listeners supported. We don't take money from any other source. Uh, It's only possible if our listeners come through and support us. And we hope that you, if you have not yet become a member, you don't have to become a BAI buddy, but uh, that would be great too. If you call us at 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org and sign up. So, uh, Jesse, I want to get back to Jeffrey Tubin uh, because there's just so much to talk about here. Uh, so we, we mentioned Ukraine and Russia, and that's where I want to go now. Jeffrey Tubin's latest book is called True Crimes and Misdemeanors, the Investigation of Donald Trump. So have we learned just, uh, Jeffrey, how extensive the Russian effort to influence our election really was? Uh, 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 The the Russian efforts in the 2016 election? Yes, yes. Well, now we have a whole other situation. That's your next book, I suspect. um, 
Well, I'm sorry. You mean, what are they doing in the 2020 election, the current one? No, 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 no. I, the, wasn't the, the Mueller investigation able to identify numerous links between individuals with ties to the Russian government and oh, people associated oh, yeah. with the Trump campaign? Oh, right. yeah. and I was just I mean, wondering if we, if we have yet learned just how extensive that, that whole thing really was. Uh, I know I've had uh, one of the people uh, who uh, was uh, implicated in it, uh, George Papadopoulos is a, is a guest on my show. And of course, uh, he kind of was rather slippery when I asked him direct questions. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the evidence of the Russian effort to uh, get Donald Trump elected in 2016 uh, is so extraordinary that um, I, I, it's just amazing that anyone could contest it at this point. And it, and it really was in two parts. Uh, the first part uh, involved social media, and it was conducted through the Internet Research Agency, uh, which is a nominally private company in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, owned by a very close associate of, of President Putin's. And, you know, the the... the the evidence is very explicit. There are emails that talked about how we are helping Trump. And you see they bought ads. They created fake organizations. They organized rallies in, in the United States um, on, on Trump's behalf. I mean, it, it could not be clearer. You know, you can argue that um, the impact wasn't that great when you consider how much social media um, w- w- was, you know, how, how much social media was used um, in 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 the campaign, but I mean the, the the effort by the Internet Research Agency cannot be denied. In addition, Did it all? oh go ahead. More importantly, there was the hacking that was conducted by the Russian military. The Russian military hacked the Democratic National Committee emails. Later, they hacked the um, the the um, uh, John Podesta's emails. He was you know Hillary Clinton's campaign chair. You, they have the names of the Russian military officials who did this in the Mueller report. I mean, this is not mysterious or um, uh, really even up for debate. The Russian military hacked these emails, gave them to Wikipedia. Wikipedia released them with the sole and exclusive purpose of trying to defeat Hillary Clinton in, in the election. Um, there's just no doubt, uh, no doubt about it. I remember when he said during the debates, Trump said during the debates, Russia, if you're listening, go get Hillary Clinton's emails. But did Paul Manafort, his uh, campaign manager, share polling data with an oligarch who was linked to Vladimir Putin? Uh, he sure did. But I mean, one of the most extraordinary uh, uh, pieces, of, you know, things that I learned in the course of, of, of writing True Crimes and Misdemeanors was a story about one of the junior prosecutors on, uh, on, on the team, uh, on Mueller's team. Uh, his name is Rush Atkinson. And one day he was going through um, the records that the, uh, the, the, the Mueller team had assembled of how the Russian military hacked um, the Clinton campaign's emails. And he's looking and he's looking and he sees one day in particular, there's a big spike in activity. 
there's, you know, they, 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 they start hacking even more. So Rush Atkinson says to himself, well, like, why that day? What goes on? What, what happened that day? So he starts Googling around and he sees that is the very day that Donald Trump says in, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, to, to, uh, to, you know, at, at a news conference, hey, Russia, if you're listening, go get Hillary Clinton's emails. It's the same day. And he sits there with another prosecutor, Jeannie Ree, and they, they start looking at the time zones and seeing, you know, what would, did it, did, could it, did the times really lined up? And they did. They did. It, it's, it seems entirely clear that the president, that, that the candidate Trump's words inspired Russia to accelerate their hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, does that prove a meeting of the minds between Russia and, and Trump? No, it doesn't. But it, it's uh, extraordinary. Um, it, it, it's, it's extraordinary um, the um, degree to which there was a call and response between the two. But then there were all these other things like the Paul Manafort uh, and Roger Stone and and others. Why weren't they sufficient to legally prove that the Trump team was coordinating with Russia? Instead, Trump kept on repeating no collusion. Well, you know, I I think, to be fair, um, there... um, Mueller didn't prove any collusion. Now, Mueller Mueller saw that Russia engaged in dramatic attempts to help Trump. Um, There were, as I said, there was the social media aspect. There was the hacking aspect. But there was never any proof that the Trump campaign coordinated or conspired or worked with Russia on those projects. Uh, you know, th- there there was some evidence th- that that the re- that the Trump campaign was willing to do it. I mean, certainly the infamous meeting in Trump Tower in June of 2016, um, where um, they, they met with a Russian lawyer, a, a woman who um, claimed to have dirt on Hillary Clinton. But nothing really came of that meeting. And, um, you know, Roger Stone was supposedly a. a, a uh, a, a, a um, intermediary between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign, but n- they could never prove any connection. So, you know, there was a lot of smoke about collusion, but there was no provable fire, as far as I could, as, as far as I could tell, or Mueller could tell. What about obstruction of justice? Um, how serious a crime is that? Didn't the Mueller investigation uncover extensive evidence that Trump had? repeatedly obstructed justice, um, among other things, attempting several times to have someone fire Mueller and, and end the special counsel's investigation? Um, I, yes. I mean, th- this is where it's important to draw a distinction. You know, Trump, Trump said over, over and over again, um, no collusion, no obstruction. I, I think the president was right about collusion. There was no proven criminal collusion. However, there was uh, very much uh, proven uh, the crime of obstruction of justice uh, by the by the president. And and you know when when the president told James Comey to uh, 
um, to uh, lay off Michael Flynn. When he fired James Comey, when he didn't do that, he told his White House counsel um, uh, to to fire Mueller. And then uh, and then when Don McGahn, the White House counsel, didn't do that, he told McGahn to lie about it. All of that was worse obstruction of justice, I think, than anything associated with Bill Clinton in 1998 or Richard Nixon in 1974. But in, in the other area that I'm very critical of Mueller, Mueller didn't come out and say uh, the truth uh, about that in, in his report. He, he just he, he, he was so vague and inconclusive about it that it was not um, that, that the report was uh, deeply misleading and it allowed uh, it allowed um, uh, William Barr, the attorney general, to mislead the public about uh, what Mueller really found. And I think that was a very disappointing aspect of Mueller's investigation. Mueller stated that he would have exonerated the president if the evidence had supported exoneration. Why did he make that statement in such a convoluted way? There's a lot of convoluted language in this whole thing, but uh, there, there certainly is a lot of convoluted language there. And I mean, what he said was um, that um, what, what he said was um, there is this Justice Department policy. I think many people are familiar with it by now. Of um, there is there no one could. Uh, um, a sitting president can't be indicted. They feel like that's uh, inappropriate for a president, that it's inconsistent with our constitutional structure. I happen to think Is that, that a legal that opinion or is that just a policy that was developed over the years? Uh, and was it's that policy, policy related to Nixon's impeachment inquiry? It, it, it came up first under Nixon and it was reaffirmed under um uh, under Bill Clinton, I happen to think that policy is correct. I, I don't think you can indict. You should be able to indict a sitting president. I think you know every other branch of government is a a large number of people. You can always replace one or work without one. I think the idea that a president of the United States sitting there, you know, being tried for a criminal offense is inconsistent with how. You know, the, the the executive branch of government is sustained. You can always remove a president and then prosecute him. I mean, that that possibility exists. But in any case, the policy does exist. And Mueller was bound by it. And but so what he said was, because I'm bound by this policy and can't indict Donald Trump, he could not have his day in court to respond to my charges. So I will refrain from even suggesting that he's guilty of a crime because he has no forum in which to respond. I think that's crazy. I think that is not consistent with um, his obligations. And I think it gave Trump um, uh, an undeserved free ride in response to this investigation. You're right that his team did a brilliant job in the tradition of prosecutors with meticulous forensic examinations. They, they built compelling cases against several important individuals and extracted guilty pleas from culpable defendants. But uh, weren't the, the legal conclusions in Moe's final report nearly incomprehensible to ordinary listeners? What prevented 
him from you or them from using plain language. Well, uh, I, 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 I'm think, assuming many people I, I, bought I mean, copies of it and then and never read all the way through. Yes, I I, uh, I, I sometimes compare um, the uh, the Mueller report to uh, Stephen Hawking's famous book, A Brief History of Time which was uh, both of them were purchased a great deal. I don't know how, how often they were actually read, but um, the, um, uh, I mean, look, Leonard, I think it was a mistake. I, I think they, uh, that the, the Mueller tied himself in knots in order to, um, in order to avoid just a straightforward conclusion about what, um, what, Trump actually did when it came to obstruction of justice. And, you know, it was bad enough on its own terms, you know, to, to be vague and, and, uh, in, and, and, you know, just not tell the public the straight truth. But what made it worse was that he opened the door for Barr to actively mislead the country for, uh, about Mueller's conclusions. Um, I, you know, and this is an example of, I think, Mueller placing undue trust in American institutions that, that he didn't um, he didn't um, defend himself. You know, he trusted that the Justice Department would behave honorably. And it and it didn't. And, and Barr didn't. And, and I think the country paid a price for it. And he didn't uh, defend his findings in response to Barr's distortions, uh, which surprised a lot of people looking back. Uh, was it a mistake for the media to portray Mueller as the man who would bring down the president? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that that was uh, always a misleading um, description. You know, his job was not to bring down the president. His job was to conduct a thorough and fair investigation. And um, I, I think he did that in many respects. As I say, I think he made a mistake on the subpoena and he made a mistake on the report. Um, I, I think a lot of people who hate Donald Trump projected their own feelings onto Mueller and um, Mueller, that, that Mueller was never going to uh, gratify those feelings because Mueller, I, I think, correctly saw himself, uh, you know, with a much more limited mandate. He, he was not out to get the president. He was out to get uh, the truth and provable crimes. Uh, but, you know, as I say, I think he pulled two important punches uh, in the course of his investigation. Do you think that uh, allowed President Trump to feel free enough to speak to uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, <laughs> and make his demands clear the the demands that led to the uh the impeachment i'm sorry i i, I didn't quite catch that well he had escaped the Mueller business report and now he uh, speaks to zelensky about uh giving him dirt on on joe biden uh um, so that's a whole new scandal but do you think that he right, but- he's feeling a little invulnerable because of what what he had escaped Absolutely. I, I think um, this is what happens with with bullies, that when you uh, when, when you don't confront a bully right away, uh, they um, they, um, they, they they take advantage and, and push even farther. And I think that's what happened uh, 
um, in this uh, in this situation. Uh, you had um, you had you had uh, Trump triumph over what he perceived, and I think correctly, uh, as triumphing in the Mueller investigation, and he used that as uh, justification to engage in collusion on a grand scale and abuse of power on a grand scale uh, when it came to Ukraine. And, the, you know, sometimes Trump often said, uh, Trump, Trump often said, you know, they're trying to impeach me for a single phone call. Well, it wasn't just the single phone call. Uh, a the, very good the, phone call. The, the phone call was, was egregious, but there was a whole pattern of behavior. But the proximity of that phone call, you know, Mueller testified on July 24th, uh, 2019 and was, I think, a, um, a pretty bad witness. And it was the next morning that Trump, energized by Trump Mueller's failure, leaned on President Zelensky of Ukraine to, um, uh, you know, to, to give him dirt on Joe Biden and essentially extort him uh, with uh, congressionally appropriated military funds. That, Jeffrey, we've run, we've run out of money, we're out of time. Jeffrey, we've run out of time, oh, unfortunately. Right. Uh, and I do want to point out that you end the book by pointing out that President Trump handled the coronavirus issue the same way he handled the Russia and Ukraine scandals, by ducking responsibility and lying. And given all that he's gotten away with, I'm suspecting that uh, the, he might even be reelected if he uh, can work this Postal Service thing out. Thank you so much for being on our show. Jeffrey Tubin, his book, his latest book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, The Investigation of Donald Trump. There's soon to be a TV movie based on one of his other books. It's always a pleasure, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And that, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared this interview, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work they do throughout the week. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else podcasts are available. And you can find links to past shows on our website, lendedlocatedlarge.com. And if there's anything you'd like to tell me about any of our shows or just like to say hello, you can reach me at lendedlopate at wbai.org. One more a reminder, we are in the midst of fundraising and we, we're asking for your help. Go to our website, give to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to become uh, a, uh, a member. Or if you become a BAI buddy, we will send you a copy of Jeffrey Tubin's book. We hope you will join us again on Monday when Professor of English and Journalism at Brooklyn College and media columnist for The Nation magazine, Eric Alterman, will discuss his latest book, Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse. Have a great weekend.